So the last time we were here, remember that several weeks ago? Uh, we finished with a discussion on John's purpose. You'll remember John's purpose statement in John 20, verse 31. But these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And we were talking about how that's an interpretive problem. It's an interpretive problem because it can be viewed of one, one of two ways. John could be saying, I'm writing to you who already believe so that I can encourage you. Or he could be saying, I'm writing to you who might believe, and I'm writing to you so that you will believe. And in that sense, it's evangelism. So his purpose statement could be saying he's writing to edify believers, or his purpose statement could be saying, could be saying that he's writing to make more believers. And I took the position that he's writing to make believers, that this is primarily evangelistic. That's not to say he didn't have a secondary goal of encouraging believers. And one of the ways we can, we can look at that is in 1 John 5, he writes another purpose statement. And I have it on the screen for you. 1 John 5, verse 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Is he writing to believers or unbelievers? He's writing to believers. He said, who believe? Right. He made it very clear. I'm writing to those of you who believe. And by comparison, John 20, verse 31 seems extremely evangelistic compared to this. Both of them are purpose statements. Both of them are very similar. But one of them is clearly being written to believers. And then we also talked about the seven signs that Jesus performed. Remember at the wedding feast of Cana, he turned water into wine. He says this is the first sign. And we looked at several of those signs. And all of those are intended to prove what? All of those signs and miracles are intended to do what? To prove who He is. To validate the message. To validate the message that He was giving. Because each of those signs was accompanied by a teaching. He would do a miracle, He'd perform a work, and then He would teach. And the teaching, we saw that chart the last time, the teaching would almost always correspond to uh, the miracle. There's another aspect of John that's important, and they are the I am statements. The I am statements of Jesus. It's the phrase, ego a me. That one. John uses this little phrase 23 times in the, in the gospel. Now, other gospel writers use it, but none of them seem to focus on it the way John does. Where does this little phrase come from, and why is it important? Yes. Good. What'd she say? The burning bush. Oh. The I am, right. But it's in Greek. So is the Lord talking in Greek? That's my question. The Old Testament is, is in Hebrew. How do we get the connection between a New Testament Greek, ego a me, and Exodus 3.14 and other passages, we'll look at them, that are in Hebrew? Okay. Um, remember the second or third class we had when we talked about the products of the intertestamental period? Oh, yeah. I got that one. <laughs> and I talked to you about something called the Septuagint. Remember that? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was done, well, part of it was started around 200 BC, and it was the primary biblical text for the New Testament church. 
in the time of Jesus, the Christians of his day would have used the Septuagint. And so John, when he references the Old Testament, he's not referencing back to the Hebrew text. He's referencing back to the Greek text, the Greek translation. It would be kind of like you write a book and you quote the Bible. You're going to quote it in English because that's your language. You're not going to quote it in Hebrew. So John quotes from the Old Testament and he quotes the Greek. And in Exodus 3.14, we'll look at it, but let's look at a couple of these areas where the Septuagint actually uses ego and me. Go over to uh, Isaiah 45. We'll be back to John. Isaiah 45, verse 18, is one of the places where he uses this ego a me. Would someone read 45.18, whoever gets there? 18? Yes, sir. This is what the Lord says. He who creates heavens, he is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it as a waste place, but to form it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no one else. So, I am the Lord. And the Greek is ego a me. Go back to Exodus. Okay, well, the one I'm looking for, it says, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham. And there again, it's ego a me. This is a term used to describe a self-disclosure of God. God is just defining himself. Uh, go back to Exodus 3, verse 14. Moses is at the burning bush. Thank you. Yeah. So here when Moses says, who are you? He says, I am. In the Greek translation, ego a me. I am the self-existing one. I am the one who existed in the beginning, who, who was, who is, and who is to come. That's who I am. I'm not a created God. When he says, I am, he's defining his own nature. Ego a me. Now, let's go to the New Testament here. When it's used in John, he uses it in a couple of different ways. We'll start in John 1, verse 20. He uses it here, and we're going to look at a couple of ways that it's used. It's used in four ways. It's used as a common identifier. John 1, verse 20, he says, This is John the Baptist, and he confessed and said, And did not deny, but confess, I am not the Christ. So that's just how we would use the phrase, I am. Basic usage. Um, there's another one in 1835 where Jesus says he's the king. There's also an absolute use. Uh, go over to John 8. I promise this will start making sense in a minute. John 8, verse 24. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. The he there is supplied by the translators. It's just I am. You will die in your sins. Jump down to verse 28. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. John 8, verse 56. And this is where you're going to see this use of the phrase, I am, is very meaningful. Verse 56, Jesus says, 
to the Pharisees, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. He connects himself right back to the God at the burning bush and uses the exact same identifier that God used. And you know that because look at the response of the Pharisees. Verse 59, Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went away, went out of the temple. They wanted to kill him because he made himself out to being God. This phrase, ego a me, I am, for the Jews had a lot of meaning. And if you identified yourself as I am, what you're saying is you're Yahweh, you're God. And they understood that very clearly. That's the absolute use of this phrase, I am. Then there's one as an uncertain predicate. Don't let predicate the word scare you. It's not a bad word. Uh, John 6, verse 20. Some of us didn't go to college. Yeah, I know, but that's the word the grammarians use, and I didn't have another word to replace it with. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. What is you? There's no predicate there. The predicate it describes what the subject is doing or what uh, the subject is. And he doesn't say what he is other than saying, it is I. Literally, this phrase reads, I am, do not be afraid. It literally just says, ego a me, do not be afraid. They shouldn't be afraid. This is in the storm. They shouldn't be afraid of the storm. Why? Because of who he is. Yahweh is in the boat. And he's walking on water, right? Yeah, he's walking on water. He's God. And there's nothing in that storm that should make you fearful. Because I am. It's, a self, it's his own self-expression of his very nature. He's claiming to be God. And if him walking on water didn't help you see that, in John 18, there's another use that's similar to this, and they have a different response. In John 6, when he's walking on water and he says, Ego a me, do not be afraid, they calm down. In John 18, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, the soldiers. They're looking for the Jesus of Nazareth. John 18, verse 5, they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, Ego a me, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. That's the most important part. <laughs> yes, it is. Very different response here. Now he says, Ego a me, and it's not comfort that it brings, it's abject fear, and all these armed soldiers fall over made to kneel <laughs> yeah they were made to kneel yeah i i would point out something here that's kind of interesting is that they drew back and fell to the ground they didn't do this which is bowing in submission they fell back in fear I read it, I, in my memory they were made to kneel i don't remember where that is but that's okay yeah Either way, you get the point. 
this is not comfort coming, right? Whether they were made to kneel or they fell back, this is not comfort coming. This is fear. They fell to the ground and all he said was, I am. Okay, the final use is an explicit predicate. An explicit predicate. And these are the seven I am statements of Jesus. Where Jesus says, not just I am, but then he tells you what he is. I am, and then he fills in the blank. These I am statements, the ones with an explicit predicate, do more than say that Jesus is God. When Jesus told the Pharisees, I am, he was saying, I'm God. But when he uses these other statements, it's not just, I am God. It's, I am God for you. Each one of the seven statements describe Jesus in his saving work. Each one gives a facet of his saving work. John MacArthur said the I am statements reveal different facets of Christ's nature as God and his work as Savior. C.H. Williams, who wrote in a dictionary, um, said the network of metaphorical I am statements in John's Gospel are similarly linked by the theme of salvation, as all of them focus on Jesus' role as the source and the giver of eternal life. You want to understand who Christ is in salvation? Look at the seven I am statements in John. And each one of them will give you a different facet. Take a diamond and spin it and look at it from every angle. And that's what these seven statements do. I want to spend some time looking at the I am statements, but we're not going to be able to look at all of them. And I had a choice. And my choice was, do I hit all seven of them with very little depth? Or do I give you one of them with a lot of depth? I chose give you one with a lot of depth, let you understand it, and maybe that'll whet your appetite to go study the rest. Okay? It's in John 6. It's in John 6. That's where we'll be. I I said at the beginning, we're going to spend our time in John 6. We're also going to go back to the Old Testament and get some some background. I chose the one out of John 6 because I view John 6 as being an interpretive challenge. Anybody know why I think John 6 is an interpretive challenge? Anybody know any, any areas that they use John 6 to teach false doctrine? Mm-hmm. I try to stay away from false doctrine. So do I. Any former Catholics in the room? Have you heard any Catholic interpretations of John 6? Huh? Mm-hmm. At the end of John 6, verse 54, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Catholic Church Church tells you that... That's that's what uh, I see what you're saying, because, you know, if you think about people with uh, ADD, ADHD, autism, that's exactly what they would say. Ooh, gross. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's not even close to what he means. It's not even close. But there are so many people who look at John 6 and they can't see anything other than what the Catholic Church teaches on this. That the Eucharist is the physical, literal, body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. And then the Catholic Church teaches all sorts of blasphemy based on that teaching, that doctrine. If I'm happy to go to the Church of Adoration, that's what it is, I don't know. 
That, that's the consequence of transubstantiation, is adoration. They worship the bread as God. And if you want more on that, I have a class online on the website for Roman Catholicism on the Eucharist, and it's an hour-long class on that doctrine. So that's why I've decided I want to spend time on this one this morning, and we'll spend our time today on this. We might get to the second one a little bit today, but next week I, I'll just hit the others really quick and just show you where they are. We'll do the last two interpretive problems, and we'll get on to Romans. Okay? Okay. So I want to... This is the statement out of John. John 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And I need to give you some Old Testament context and we need to go back and look at a story of the Old Testament so we can have the context that we need to understand what's going on in this passage. And then we're going to walk through John 6, starting in verse 1, and we'll get all the way down to that statement, and then we'll jump to the end and work on some stuff there too. As well, okay? Mark your spot in John. Go over to Exodus 15. Exodus 15. Exodus 15 begins with the Song of Moses in Israel. The Song of Moses is celebrating God delivering them from the hand of Pharaoh. They had just come through the Red Sea. They had seen the ten miracles. They get out of Egypt. They get to the Red Sea. God splits the Red Sea. They walk through on dry land. They turn around. Pharaoh and his army are there. The waves crash in. Pharaoh and his army die. And now we have the Song of Moses. Worshiping God and praising Him for the deliverance. Verse 22 then, after they leave the Red Sea, they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And they came to Marah and could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. And so the people grumbled and complained. What do we drink? And so God changed the waters at Marah to be sweet. So now they can drink. That's in verse 25. Exodus 16, 1. Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. They've been out of Egypt for a month and a half. A month and a half ago, they watched God bring the most powerful king in the world to his knees. And they are already complaining about what God is not doing for them. Verse 2, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Verse 3, would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate the bread to the full, for you have brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. You know, when God tests you, it's not so He can figure out what you are. It's so that you can figure out what you are. I'm going to test you, and I'm going to provide you bread, and I'm going to do it in a miraculous way. I'm going to rain bread from the sky. Jump down to verse 13. So it came about at evening that quails came up. They were wanting meat, so he sent quails and covered the camp in the morning. There was a layer of dew around the camp, 
When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, the surface of the wilderness, there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. Jump down to verse 16. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. The sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much, and some gathered little. When they measured it with an omer, he who has... He who had gathered much had no, had no excess, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. And they were commanded, do not leave it till the morning. Whatever you gather, eat it. All of it. Leave nothing. If you leave it till morning, it spoils. And God's not going to be happy with you. And in fact, that's what they do. They actually leave some of it, and Moses goes after them for it. Okay, but what was this bread? What, what was it like? Jump down to verse 31. The house of Israel named it manna, and it was like coriander seed, white, and its taste was like wafers with honey. But it sounds like it was a delicious meal. Honey was a delicacy at the time, and now you're getting bread that's flavored with honey. And you don't even have to bake it yourself. It just falls from the ground, and you got it. And how long did God provide the bread for him? 40 years. Verse 35. Oh. Would you read 35? Since you got the right answer. Oh, son of Israel, <clears throat> the sons of Israel ate the manna for 40 years until they came to a habited land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Yeah. 40 years in the wilderness. Every meal served by the Creator. 40 years of endless provision, 40 years that he satisfied their, their desire for food. Every desire they had for food, God satisfied for them by raining bread from the sky. Go over to Proverbs 9. This will be, I think this is our last Old Testament before we go back to John 6. Proverbs 9, there's something else we need to see. This idea of eating and drinking is used throughout Scripture. And it's not referring to cannibalism. Proverbs 9, here, wisdom is personified. And eating and drinking here are depicted as taking in wisdom. Proverbs 9, verses 4 and 5. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, Come, eat of my food and drink of the wine I have mixed. If you're naive, if you're, let's say, hungering for wisdom, go to someone who has wisdom and eat and drink. Satisfy your desire for wisdom. That's what he's saying. Eating and drinking here is picturing you taking the wisdom and not just hearing it, but taking it inside of you, making it a part of you, living it. Right? And that's why he says, eat and drink it. He's not telling you, go find some edible object that you can call wisdom and eat it. He's saying, take the wisdom that you receive and internalize it. Does that make sense? Now, with that context in mind, let's go back to John 6. And we're going to start at the beginning of the chapter and kind of work our way through it. John 6 begins with Jesus and his disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee, verse 1. 
And as usual for Jesus, a large crowd was following him. Verse 2, a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. He goes up on the mountain because it's easier to teach a large group of people if you can see them all. Verse 4, now the Passover, the feast of Jews, was near. That's going to become relevant later. Verse 5, therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Jesus is, worrying about, is worried about satisfying the desires of the crowd, of providing for them and caring for them. And he's testing Philip to see if Philip is going to give the right answer. Philip should say, Lord, you're the great I am. You can rain bread from the sky. Take care of it. Is that what Philip says? No, Philip answered, 200 denarii, 200 days of labor, is not worth enough to get bread sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. Even if we had 200 days of labor, the wages for 200 days, we couldn't even give everyone a little bit of bread. Let's, let's add to that. To make bread took hours. Yeah. And someone coming in and say, I need a thousand loaves of bread. It ain't happening. Yeah. And, and the thing is, you've got 5,000 men there. The number 5,000, that's just the men. Assume each man has a wife and two kids. You're talking about fifteen to 20,000 people there. Philip is right. There's no way they're going to buy bread for all these. So, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, verse 8, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? He doesn't get it either. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down. It's number about 5,000. Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed it to those who were seated. Likewise, also the fish as much as they wanted. Totally satisfied. Nobody left hungry. Nobody left with any desire for food once he was done. And you know that. Look at verse 12. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which they had left, uh, which were left over by those who had eaten. Everyone, all fifteen to twenty thousand, ate as much as they wanted. And once again, John describes this miracle, and he doesn't describe any incantations. He doesn't describe any magical sounds happening, any flashing lights. It's just he took the five loaves and the two fish, and he started distributing them. And it's like the endless loaf. You know, you just, he keeps breaking it off, and it never ends. He blessed it, and then he passed it out. And that's it. That's all you get. And everybody is satisfied. Everybody gets exactly how much they want, and there's plenty left over, and there's 12 baskets full. Why 12 baskets? The tribes. Could be the 12 tribes. I, I, I would think a little bit closer to the... the yeah, the he's got 12 apostles. 12. He just provided them a, a lunch to go. So he fills the crowd. He gives them their desire for food. He satisfies their desire. 
In this, verse 14, Therefore the people saw the signs which he had performed. They said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Wouldn't you think that's the wrong statement? That could be a wrong statement. Yeah, because, you know, prophets weren't able to do that. That's true. Prophets did some pretty amazing stuff in the Old Testament. They made axe heads float. They laid on a carcass and it came to life. They, yeah. they did some amazing stuff. Huh? They made, they made the sun stand still. Yeah. They did some pretty cool stuff. But that, we're going to get to that. You, okay. you actually have a point there. That is actually a statement that indicates something that the people were taught. This is later in my notes, so I'll probably say this again later, but the rabbis would teach that there would come a Messiah who would do greater works than Moses. And one of the works that he would do would be to rain bread from the sky like Moses did. And the people see Jesus make bread out of nothing. And they say, could this be what he's talking about? Could this be that prophet? They didn't connect everything in their head, so they called him a prophet. Could this be him? That's going to come back in a minute. Like I said, I got ahead of my notes, but that's why I wanted to bring that up. Okay. Is, is this the same prophet that Moses references? Good. Yeah, in Deuteronomy. One that you will listen to, right? You didn't listen to me, but you'll listen to this guy. That's at uh, the end of, end of Deuteronomy. Good. It's really good. There must be something about that seed getting ahead of you. And I'm telling you, I mean, some of you read my notes before I come to class. Okay. <laughs> okay, so from there, verse 15, Jesus sends his disciples away. Oh, we need to point this out. Verse 15, so Jesus perceiving uh, that they were intending to come to take him by force, to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They saw this miracle and said, oh man, political revolution coming up. We're never going to have another famine again. We can make this guy king, all of our problems will be solved. And Jesus said, whoa, no, 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 no. You don't understand what I'm here for. And he backs out. That's going to come relevant later as well. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. He sends them away. Matthew 14 says Jesus sent them across the sea. He went up on the mountain to pray. He dismissed the crowds. Verse 17, the disciples are in the boat. They start to cross over to Capernaum. Verse 18, the sea begins to be stirred up. There became a strong wind that was blowing. And when they had rowed three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened because he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. They're three or four miles out. They're still not anywhere near their destination. Jesus gets in the boat, and immediately they're at Capernaum. And the crowd follows him. Jump down to verse 25. When they, the crowd, found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? They had to cross over. And they knew there wasn't enough boats, and they knew he wasn't on the boat with his disciples. How did he get here? 
Now, this is where people say, well, look, you know, so-and-so, you know, Catholic Church has a billion people in it. Must be true. Must be right. This church has 5,000 people that attend. They must have something right. Jesus is not confused here. He knows exactly why these people are following him. And it's not the right reasons. And that's going to become the central issue of the passage. Why are you here? Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You're here for another meal. You don't want anything to do with me. You just want what I can give you. Verse 27, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do that we, we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Don't search after physical bread. Physical bread is not the goal and the object of this passage. It's not what he's talking about here. He tells them, I'm not talking to you about bread. That's what you want, but that's not what I'm here to give you. Is this something Joel Osteen will never preach? This is something a lot of people will never preach, because you get later, and there's no, some strong sovereignty of God and salvation later. Well, it's, a, it's, it's saying, basically, against everything prosperity gospel gives. Yeah. I'm not here to give you all the benefits. I'm here to give you one thing, and it's Christ. What is the work that God wants you to do? What is the thing that you are supposed to be seeking after? Is it bread? No. You are supposed to be seeking after believing in Jesus Christ. The goal is not eating and drinking physical bread. Catholic Church would have you believe the goal of the Christian life is for you to go eat some bread and drink some wine. And in doing that, you are gaining some kind of spiritual benefit or merit. That is not the goal of the Christian life. The central issue of this chapter is, do you believe in Christ? That's the central issue. And the Jews understood that's what Jesus was getting at. They knew what he was getting at. Notice how they respond to him, chapter 6, verse 30. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign? So that we may see and believe you. What are they talking about? They're talking about believing him. They're talking about faith. He's going to get to that later. <laughs> yeah, you're right. What work do you do? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. That's right back to Exodus 16. Moses rained bread from heaven. You're saying you're better than Moses. You're acting like you're better than he is. So you, according to our rabbis, you should do something better than he did. And he rained bread, and <laughs> we're kind of hungry right now, Jesus, so come on, open it up, let's go. They want him to prove that he's the Messiah. Like I said earlier, they thought the Messiah was going to come and bring more bread, like Moses, but just do it in a better way. More abundantly, or bread that wouldn't spoil something better, but it would include some kind of bread. They were waiting for him to prove he was the Messiah by doing it. You know, I, I don't know if it was 
necessarily more bread, but it could be. But I would think it's the same thing that we have going on in society here where, you know, uh, because I believe in the Lord, everything's going to be provided. Everything's going to be my all my de desires are going to be met. And he only promises a few things. You will have a place to eat and I mean, place of food to eat and a place to stay. Yeah. That's all. That's the only promise he ever gave. Yeah. And he's offering them something far better than a loaf of bread. Right. Even if that loaf of bread never perished, he's offering them something far greater than a loaf of bread. And they don't get it. And he's going to confront them here. They're not looking for a redeemer from sin. That's what he's there to offer. They're looking for another meal. And they wanted a political revolution. We already looked in, in verse six, uh, 13 and 14 where they tried to make him a king. They wanted all the wrong things. And Jesus wasn't there to do any of those. He wanted them to believe in him as the Messiah. And the signs that he was performing and the teaching that he was giving was supposed to prove he is who he said he is. John 6 verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you bread out of heaven. Moses didn't cause bread to fall from the sky. It is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am, ego a me, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Stop looking for physical bread. You're looking for me, is what he's saying. I'm what you want. Not that he is physically bread. The people weren't talking to a loaf at that point. They were talking to a person. He didn't become bread. But he is the one that can satisfy your soul. He is the one that can satisfy your deepest hunger. He can give your soul eternal life. And notice the comparison he makes in verse 35. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Coming to Jesus is parallel to believing in Jesus. Coming to Jesus, believing in him, will satisfy your hunger and thirsting. Well, I came to Jesus several years ago. I still get hungry physically. He's not talking about he's going to satisfy your physical hunger. It's a different hunger. He's going to satisfy your hunger for a relationship with God because you will have a spiritual desire for God. Eating and drinking, just like in Proverbs, is akin to taking in the truth about Christ. Just like in Proverbs when he said, eat and drink of wisdom, you need to eat and drink the truth of Christ. Take it into you, internalize it, apply it to you. MacArthur provides some ways that eating and drinking is analogous to taking spiritual truth. These are not mine. These are MacArthur's. But these are really, really helpful. I think you'll enjoy this. First, eating and drinking spiritual truth is like eating and drinking food in this sense. Food is useless unless it's eaten. I don't know anybody who serves their dinner, puts it on the table in front of them, and stands there and looks at it. That looks pretty yeah, I good. Do. I do. I figure out which one I'm going to eat first. No, no, no. <laughs> they just stand there for 10 minutes and stare at it, and they don't touch it. 
Boy, that looks really good. <coughs> I bet you if I ate that, that'd be pretty yummy. I'm not going to eat it, though. I'm just going to sit there and look at it. Nobody does that because the food is useless sitting on the plate. It's only useful to you. can only satisfy you if you actually eat it, if you actually take it in. Just knowing truth, just having a whole bunch of facts about Jesus is useless. The Pharisees had a whole bunch of facts, and they went to hell. They had a whole bunch of theology, and they went to hell because they never applied it. It never got past their brain. Hebrews 4, verse 2, For indeed, if we have had the good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. It was useless to them. Like your dinner sitting on a plate that you won't eat. It'll provide you no sustenance. It'll provide you nothing. James 1, 22, But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Don't delude yourself. Sit in a good biblical church here teaching week after week after week after week, and you go home and you never apply any of it, you're deluded. Say that one more time. You're sitting in a church week after week hearing truth, and you never apply any of it. You're deluded. You're deceiving yourself. You think that just by acquiring a whole bunch of truth, you're making something better. That truth is a judgment against you if you don't apply it. Hebrews 10, verse 29, How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve? Who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. People who do not apply what they learn, people who do not apply spiritual truth by taking it in and making it a part of their life, they are headed for judgment. They are not headed for heaven. Be a doer of the Word. Apply what you learn. Because if you don't, this class and every sermon you hear will just be a judgment on you. Apply what you learn. Second, eating and drinking is analogous to taking spiritual truth and that eating is prompted by hunger. You don't eat unless you're hungry. And once you've been satisfied, once you've eaten, your desire for food stops. Remember on Thanksgiving you ate? And when you're done eating... You're like, I'm never going to eat again. You eat when you're hungry. And those who are hungry, those who are not hungry, they just don't eat. They withhold themselves from the meal because they're not hungry. In the same way, if you're satisfied in your sinful condition, if you're satisfied with starving in sin, you'll never go to Christ to eat. You'll never seek satisfaction in Christ. You'll never hunger for spiritual life or for spiritual things because you're satisfied with your sin. Luke 5.31, And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, the people who think they're righteous in their own eyes, but sinners to repentance. When God gives you life, when He gives you spiritual life, you immediately begin to hunger and to thirst for spiritual truth. And that old church that just 
taught feel-good messages or gave you rituals and smells and bells just isn't helpful to you anymore. Third, speeding up for time here, when you eat food, your digestive system incorporates that food into your body and it becomes part of you. You can think all sorts of good things about Jesus. Oh, he was a wonderful man. He was a great prophet. You can even say that he was sent by God. But if you don't take that next step and make him a part of you and become united with him by faith, he's useless to you. I would add that you have to know that he is God. Yeah, well, you do. You have to get the right truth. But if you don't unite that with faith, with trusting in him, it's useless. And when you become, when you believe in Christ, when you have faith, you become united to Him, you become one with Him, just like food becomes a part of you. John 17, 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. 1 Corinthians 6, 17, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with Him. Eating and drinking food is analogous to taking in spiritual truth in that you believe that truth, and it becomes a part of you. Fourth, eating, in, uh, fourth, eating involves trusting. Um, you go to a restaurant, you know how some of those restaurants, you can see the kitchen area? And you look back in the kitchen area, and the cook has his dog with him, and he scratches the dog's ears, and then he goes over and starts cutting chicken, raw chicken. And then he does, yeah, he wipes his nose and then he goes over and tosses, you know, fixes the salad without washing his hands. And then you see a cockroach crawl across the counter. Who's going to stick around for their meal? Nobody eats food if they think it's tainted with arsenic. To eat means you trust the meal. You trust the person who cooked it. To eat of Christ means to trust him to believe that He is good for you, to believe that He can satisfy you, that He will not endanger your soul. Fifth, eating is personal. If we go to share a meal, a fellowship meal, I can eat what's on my plate. I could even eat what's on your plate, but it does you no good for me to eat what's on your plate. The only way you can benefit from the meal is if you eat the meal yourself. No one's going to get saved because their mommy and daddy got saved. Nobody's going to heaven because they are in the same church their parents went to. Faith is not an inheritance from your parents. It's something you must choose to do. It's something that you must decide that's what you want. And if you don't, if you decide that you don't want to do that, if you choose not to believe, you can blame whoever you want for it, but in the end, you will die in your sins. John 6, well, I'll give you Psalm 49, 7. No man, by any means, uh, no man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. You can't save anybody else. John 6, verses uh, 50, 51. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that, the one who may, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. 
If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. How is he going to give his flesh in a, by transubstantiating a piece of bread? No, he's going to give his flesh on the cross. He's going to die for them. Jump down to verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. Unless you believe, you take this in, you make me a part of you, you have no life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also has, will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, not physical bread. He who eats this bread will live forever. Is this talking about transubstantiation? Is this talking about the bread of communion turning into Jesus' body and blood? No. Problem, though. Jesus' focus is all on them believing. And they are not believing. Go back to chapter 6, verse 36. Remember, we ended verse 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. Look at verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And everything that follows from there is explaining the question, the question that Mike answer, asked. Why don't they believe? Why don't they believe? And this is where someone will say, well, they don't believe because... And they give some answer. What is the answer Jesus gives? Verse 37, you don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Those who have come to me are coming to me because the Father has given them to me. And those who have not come to me are not coming to me because the Father has not given them. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Everyone that the Father gives me, I will receive. I will not lose one of them. I will hold on to them, and I will raise them up on the last day. Verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Why aren't these Jews believing? Because one, God has not given them to the Son. This is where the elect comes in. This is the sovereignty of God and salvation, which is why my answer to you was because of his gracious choice. That's right. And he says, I will not lose one. I will not lose one. The ones that are saved are saved because God has chosen to save them. The ones who are not are because God has not saved them. But the, the point I would make at this point is all those who know that have to know they're His. Yeah. Well, that's what he says in 1 John 5. Right. I write these things to you who believe so that you may know that you have eternal life. 
that you may be certain that your faith is genuine. And here Jesus is not talking about you eating some bread. He's talking about you believing in Christ. And that's the whole point of the entire passage. Believe in Christ. And when you get down to the end of it, the saddest part in all of Scripture. Verse 60, Therefore many of the disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that His disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who would not believe and who it was that would betray Him. And He was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to Me unless it has been granted to Him from the Father. As a result of this, many of His disciples withdrew and were not walking with Him anymore. I'll follow you for a piece of bread, but I won't follow you for this. Don't ask Me to believe that. So Jesus said to them, Do you want to go away also? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Some of them believed. Out of the fifteen to 20,000 people there that day, 12 of them stuck around. And one of those was Judas. Boy, Jesus, your ministry ain't looking so good right now. No, it's doing exactly what he wanted. They did not believe. Question, are you believing? Are you living out the truth that you know? All right, it's 10.01. Was that worth your time? Yes. Okay. Next week, I'll just briefly hit the six other ones. Um, we won't go in depth. We'll do the two interpretive challenges that remain in John, and then we'll start Romans. All right? I would like you to go in depth in every one of them. I would love to do that too, but we just don't have time. And this is not an exposition class, even though today I did more exposition than I did survey. But I, I just wanted to whet your appetite for the, the I am statements, and I'm hoping that'll make some of you want to go home and study it. So, all right, let's pray real quick. Father, we thank you so much. Uh, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that you have given us the bread of life. We thank you that you have uh, given us the ability to believe, to understand spiritual truth, to receive spiritual truth. You've given us a church and a home where we can learn and we can imbibe deeply the truth of your word and we uh, take in the truth of who Christ is. Father, we do ask that you would help us not to be hearers only, that you would help us to be doers, to take it in, to apply it, to make it a part of our own lives, that we would be living out the truth that we hear and not just professing truth that we don't actually believe because we won't act on. We do ask that you would help us this morning Cut out the distractions of life. Cut out the distractions of the world. Help us to focus our hearts and our minds on you and on Christ and our worship. That it would be pleasing and glorifying to you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.